afternoon. You're on the panel uh, NZ National, Jenny Morton and Chris Weekider with me uh, today. Uh, regarding the lying flat movement, uh, Michael writes, cynics argued that the uh, artificial trappings of civilization repressed, enslaved and debased the human spirit. This is an ancient Greek time, so Michael says it's nothing new. They despised all the abstracted philosophizing of the likes of Plato and his school, the Academy, <laughs> thinking they were both pretentious and pointless. Instead, we should return to nature as much as possible, fulfilling only our basic needs. So the lying flat movement, Michael says, has been around for uh, quite some time. Uh, quite a big response to uh, superannuation. Uh, that's whether or not uh, you think it should be raised uh, at some stage. Uh, the government faces an interminable cycle of debt and deficits, which would see New Zealand's debt levels rise to more than $2 trillion in 40 years if it doesn't get the costs of an ageing population under control, writes Thomas Coughlin, senior political reporter for the New Zealand Herald. The cost of health care will rise from 6.9% of GDP this year to 10.5% in 2061 and... The cost of superannuation will rise from 5% of GDP now to 7.6% of GDP in 2061. So this, according to the Treasury's most recent analysis of the government's long-term finances and asks whether uh, they are sustainable. With us to discuss is Dr Eric Crampton, the Chief Economist at the New Zealand Initiative. Uh, Dr Crampton, kia ora. Good afternoon. So this is not due to COVID spending, right, Eric? No. These long-term forecasts, the Treasury has to produce these every five years. This year's was delayed a bit by COVID, but every five years, Treasury tells us that demographics in the long term are working against us. An aging population is more expensive. Healthcare becomes more expensive in particular. Superannuation costs become more expensive. And they'll always then forecast out, assuming that there are no other policy changes, what happens to net debt if the only way that we deal with this is by racking up more debt to pay for it rather than increasing taxes, limiting expenditure elsewhere, or adjusting the superannuation settings. So every time it's kind of a set piece, Treasury says things are going to kind of blow up unless policy gets changed. You've got a lot of time to deal with it, but somebody's going to have to deal with it. Mm. And every time the government says, well, actually, we don't want to deal with it. Um, So once every five years, debt levels rise to more than $2 $2 trillion in 40 years as one forecast here. I mean, it sounds an astronomical number. Is it? It's very large. Yeah, New Zealand can't bear that. So traditionally, the Treasury has considered sort of 60% of GDP as being an upper bound on what New Zealand could possibly be borrowing. They'd be, With recent credit conditions, they've been thinking that they could borrow a bit more than that if they had to, and they always want to preserve some headroom for emergencies. So traditionally, they wanted to keep to around 20% of GDP as a net debt figure so that if we had a big earthquake in Wellington at the same time as a recession, we wouldn't wind up in a terrible circumstance because you don't want to have international credit markets kind of seized up while you need to attract a huge amount of debt. Now, Treasury's been a little bit more comfortable with higher debt levels than that, but nowhere near the kinds of levels that they're here projecting. So this, again, this isn't what they're expecting is going to happen. This is what happens. Absent policy change, we need to have some way of dealing with it in policy. Yeah, this is a no policy changes happening. So let's talk about that then, because some, and we'll bring in our panelists very shortly, some pretty controversial policy changes have been modelled. So we've got higher taxes, mm-hmm. moving the age of super to 67. One of them is actually uh, increasing uh, GST. I, I don't know what that might be. Might it be 16% or 16.5%? Indexing super to price growth, not 
wage growth. Um, you've the, the New Zealand Initiative actually did a report on New Zealand Super a couple of years ago. What did you favour? So when we looked at it, we were trying to think through, well, what's the point of super in the first place? It's meant to be there so that in retirement, people can afford a basic bundle of goods. They're not left destitute by retirement. You want to make sure that those who haven't been able to accumulate savings over their lifetime aren't in a particularly bad spot. Now, if you start from that position, you start thinking about, well, at what age should that kick in? So healthy life expectancy keeps increasing. As that keeps increasing, you might expect that the age of eligibility should be increasing, but you have to give people a lot of time to plan for it because otherwise they can't really make appropriate decisions about their own savings. So we had recommended after an initial increase in superannuation age that could be forecast for a few years from now, you just index it to healthy life expectancy, which Stats New Zealand is providing regularly now. So every time that healthy life expectancy increases by a year, at that point, the age of eligibility for, say, a decade after that would be increased by a year. So you can just keep ratcheting it automatically rather than turning it into a political fight. It's just something that happens like right. an inflation index, but to the figures on healthy life expectancy. Let's go, well, let's go, let's, let's get out a panel to jump in. Uh, Jenny. You know, I find this really interesting, and I do think that it is such a political issue. Um, politicians who are in government now or wanting to stand for you know be in government are unlikely to support an increase in the retirement age because it's not really a vote winner is it and so you know i think this is great that you're talking about doing it in well a way judith that's... collins today said we need to talk about raising the superannuation in fact yeah. that's the headline right now uh, mm. on the you know the, the red banner on the herald right now so judith collins is fronting up says we need to talk about it jenny talk about it, but will they actually take the steps that are needed? Will they actually raise the retirement age? Of course, they have done it in Australia. They gave something like 23 years notice because that's it does need to be a, a literally a generation's notice so that people can prepare for that longer working life having less opportunity. I'm surprised that one of the things though that hasn't sort of reared its head in all of this discussion is means testing especially with KiwiSaver oh. now and play. I'm, I'm not saying I'm for it or against it. I'm just saying I'm surprised it hasn't raised its head now that we have KiwiSaver so entrenched and the takeoff of KiwiSaver has been so much greater than was ever anticipated. Chris, we'll come to you, but uh, uh, response to that, Eric? Sure. I think we would probably only have to start talking about means testing if we failed to raise the age of eligibility, because as more and more people are working after the age of 65, you're going to have increasingly transfers to people who are pretty well off from people who really aren't. So right now, NZ Super ensures that hardship rates, material deprivation, is lowest among superannuitants. It's the least deprived category of people. As more and more of those people are also working, you're going to be having big transfers for from people who are poor and in work and don't have their house yet to people who are richer and still in work and have their house. That is pretty inequitable. It's one of the things we worried about in our report. But you can avoid that if you start tracking it to healthy life expectancy so that it is capturing more of what should reasonably be considered retirement rather than double funding people who are still wage earners. Double funding people who are still wage earners. Uh, crispy Kaida. Yeah, well, I'm looking at the increase and the implications. Of, yeah, if you look at for Māori, Māori male life expectancy, the moment is 73 and a half years, and for Māori females is 77 years. So if you increase the eligibility age, there's not a lot of time there for 
for um, actually getting what you've put into uh, in, in taxes over the course of your working life. I mean, at least that has improved from the first time, I think it was about 1995, when there was a suggestion that it go up to 70, and Māori life expectancy was actually under that, so there would have been no super at all. Yeah, one of the things that you'd probably want to consider with increasing the age would be some kind of transitional disability benefit. So right now you can have people who are just worn out at age 62 and aren't eligible for NZ Super until they're 65. Part of raising the age of eligibility and then health expectancy indexing it would be probably looking towards some kind of health-tested disability benefit in the transition years. Well, to speak to that, I mean, a bit of response here. Uh, Eric, at 59... And having done mostly physical work, my body is hanging out for turning 65. Yeah, and that's that's a, a problem in the current system. It would be a problem in the in a revised system where you had an increase in the age of eligibility, and that's one of the reasons we were thinking about that kind of a mean or health tested disability benefit for the interval from age 65 when you're currently eligible to the revised age after it's been ratcheted up. But we also like the idea of shifting to CPI indexing rather than wage indexing. Treasury shows how much that helps knock the costs back down. And again, if we think about what Okay, so let's just, just, yeah. just, just, just explain that a bit more. So you, sure. you, you link super to the consumer price index and not wage growth. That's right. So the two measures get you different kinds of outcomes. If you think that the point of New Zealand super is to maintain the position of a retired person relative to everybody else and and their purchasing power. So as productivity increases over time and standards of living increase over time, then retirees should get all of that as well as whatever they've saved for through NZ Super. Then you want to link it to wages. If you want to make sure that people have a basic bundle and that the value of that bundle is preserved, then you want to link it to CPI. And CPI, that prevents you from having inflation erode the value of the bundle. It makes sure that people can afford the kind of standard retirement that you lock in now. But it also means that economic growth can help you afford superannuation because if you link it to wages and productivity increases wages it's a lot harder to grow your way out of the superannuation costs because right. they just ramp up part and parcel oh, with economic growth. All right, I, nice to have you on Eric, thank you for the, um, uh, coming to the studio that is uh, Dr Eric Crampton, their Chief Economist at the New Zealand Initiative and before we move on, let's, let's go around the panel on this, you've seen this forecast trillions of dollars in 40 years time Chris you fundamentally for and against raising superannuation? Do you think it has to happen, or actually, you're quite comfortable where it is? Um, I'm, I'm sitting on the fence on it at the moment. The thing that I'm more interested in, and particularly with Māori health, mm. is actually improving health because mm. of the cost that's in there, and and that's why I'm really keen to see that the Māori Health Authority is given a good go because if we can make a step change in some of those um, afflictions that Māori are disproportionately suffering from, the downstream saving for the whole country is in many billions of dollars. Um, so you know, taking it out from that part of the equation uh, interests me more at the moment. All right, Jenny, uh, for or against raising it to, to 67? I think realistically we're going to have to look at raising it, and I don't think we need to go from, say, 65 to 70, but we are going to have to tick it up a little bit. And that, and, and we have to we have to address it now so that we so that it has you know so we do look at 23 25 years time so that people can plan for it it has time to get you know in place um before we hit that 
you know, time frames that we're talking about 40 years from now and the costs. The fact is there is only so much money to go around and a lot of it is now falling on the individual to support themselves in their retirement for both their health care and for um, actually their living expenses. Okay. And, and I think it's just reality. Raising the super just reality, what do you think? 2101 uh, Judith Collins has said it's in, the, in the paper right now uh, on the Herald that we need to talk about raising Using it, uh, Prime Minister said that by maintaining contributions to the New Zealand Super Fund, her government could give long-term certainty to New Zealand uh, that way. This is a very interesting story, this one. Today, stuff confirmed rugby columnist Sam Casey has been terminated from his sports radio station contract after sharing controversial views on women's rugby and rugby news magazine. Casey's opinion piece was titled, Hands Up, Not... Sorry, Hands Out not up, and stated that women rugby players do not deserve financial investment. He referred to the women's players as girls and claimed that if their competitions are funded, it is at the expense of men's. The column faced immediate backlash and was described as a 90s throwback by Alice Soper, who was part of the Women in Rugby Aotearoa Strategic Advisory Group, also noted Wellington rugby player. Alice is with us now. Alice Soper, kia ora. Welcome to the panel. Kia ora, thank you for having me. And of course, you were mentioned in this column too. How do you feel about Sam Casey's contract being terminated following the backlash to his column? Oh, look, like I, that was never my intention, right, in terms of sharing it. I was just like, can we all have a bit of a laugh at how uh, old school this thinking is from a young man's mouth? Um, but it wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, yeah, let's get him and, and get the guy cancelled, but was wanting that to be a learning um, opportunity for him. But obviously his bosses have decided otherwise uh, and have decided to cut his contract, which, mm. hey, I guess if you don't move with the times, you're going to be left behind at some point. Okay, so to that, to his thoughts, men's rugby a necessity, women's rugby a luxury. Yeah, so I think everybody knows that uh, during COVID, which he was talking about stuff that happened last year as well. Can we put that in context? So I think everybody knows that during COVID, all sport was a luxury. Uh, Nobody was calling any of the All Blacks essential workers. So it was all luxury. It was all uh, what we were choosing to put our money in. The reality is, though, for the women's game, we were supposed to be hosting a World Cup this year. Uh, With the borders quickly closing, the Farah Palmer Cup was the only opportunity for our black ferns to be playing rugby domestically because there's only one competition at that stage that was available for uh, Wahine. So if we wanted our black friends to get game time before hosting a World Cup, that was the way to do it. So, of course, I was going to advocate for that. Mm. Uh, he, though, didn't think that that was worth the time. Quite extraordinary views in some senses. It does seem to be uh, not in line with, you know, just, just what people are thinking now and the progress that uh, women's rugby and sports has made. How common, Alice, are views like this? Oh, very common. Like, let's be real. I've had versions of this said to me at every club I have played at uh, for the last 20 years. Um, I frequently get this, like I, like I said, I think yesterday, if I had a dollar for every time an old bloke told me that he didn't think that women's rugby is worth the investment, well, I would actually be able to pay myself and others to play our game. Uh, so, look, it's, a, it's an idea is all too common still uh, and you know there was a lot of people that were talking about hey this is a 1950s throwback or something like that no it isn't this is the same type of thinking that bands uh, the, before they were the Black Ferns when they were still just a New Zealand women's team that's the type of thinking that banned them for participation in the 94 World Cup because it wasn't sanctioned by World Rugby so there is a history there's muscle yeah. memory in this muscle memory. Uh, and unfortunately still too many people hold these opinions who are making the decisions for us Jenny Morton 
Oh, look, you know, I, I, um, I saw Alice's tweet of, of this column on the, on the weekend and was just horrified that um, this kind of thinking, OK, maybe it still exists, but that, that it's, given, it's given print, you know, it's just ridiculous. Um, the fact is that change in anything won't happen without proactive efforts, and women's rugby... You know, our team is incredibly successful. They've won the World Cup five times. They win nearly 90% of their tests. Um, they are successful. So it feels a little bit more like a threatened male than someone who's uh, actually making any, you know, cohesive thought. Chris, what are your thoughts? Um, to me, the whole thing felt like it was all very rushed. It, it, the, the column was he admitted rushed. That. It looked, yeah, and it, it felt, it read like that. I thought, you haven't put a lot of thought, and you certainly haven't considered this before you pressed the go button. <laughs> and compared to some of his other stuff that I've been told about, it was, was much more considered. Um, and I pick up on a point that, that Alice said too. Um, uh, for a young fellow, I, w- I would have hoped maybe there was a learning experience, and in the future we could have seen something that was actually more enlightened and, and, and added a bit more value. Um, the, so the, the feeling rush but adds to, you know, it's, his bosses seem to be very quick to, to chuck a young fellow who was three weeks into a job, you know, out the door. I wonder whether they would have done the same for some of the named stars that work for SENZ at the same time who, you know, have, had, have very strong views of their own. But I prefer to go for the learning experience and teach a young guy to, hey, actually, what the hell were you thinking? Let's do better next time. Would you agree with that, Alice? Well, I think people are products of their environment. Uh, and the reality is is that we haven't done a good job of telling the True. real story of our history in this country. You know, a lot of people are surprised when I tell them that the first time that women were paid to play in New Zealand was 1891. A lot of people were surprised when they hear that the first game that was played in my hometown in Wellington was 1915 on Athletic Park. Mm. You know, there's a, there's a misconception out there that women have only just started turning up once the men said it was OK for us to play. But the reality is, is that we've been trying to play this sport as long as it's existed in New Zealand. And so there's been an active and concerted effort to keep us out and to erase the history that tells that story. So I think until people are raised in an environment that has the full and frank discussion of all of these stories and actually how much more remarkable our sport is and how creative it's had to be uh, in order to survive and thrive now at this moment um, is is a much more exciting thing to tell and and until we really tell that story, well, we're going to hear these same old arguments. We're going to have people hide behind economics but then forget the details of return on investment uh, and, you know, hide these arguments in, in really pretty basic sexist language. So, yeah, I think it, this is probably something he's heard from one of the, you know, his mentors, thought it was OK for them to say it, said it himself, then got the slap on the um, hand for it. So There's a really yeah, good point in there. There's a really good yeah. point in there about, you know, telling the story and the history because some of those facts you just rattled off I did not know. I did not and know either. The editors of, you know, the editors who let this thing pass and go to print, they need to be... Um, you know, looking at themselves in the mirror just as much as the young fellow who wrote it. Mm. Just can I just can I just ask you to say that again? The first did you say the first paid the first the first the first time that women were paid to play in New Zealand, there was a woman that was up in uh, Auckland. Her intention was to, and to be fair, not the most. Uh, progressive of thinking, uh, was to have a women's team tour around as a bit of an oddity to be like, look at women trying to do men's things, Um, but we're going to be touring around and playing as entertainment. Uh, So they got the crew together. They had trained a few times. They were about to go on tour, so they'd been paid uh, for their training. When they were about to go on tour, her husband got convicted of fraud, and so it all fell over. But that happened back in 1891. Amazing. 
1915, that was the first time that women got to play at Athletic Park. In the 1920s, there was an amazing outfit that were headed up by a, a fierce woman named Phyllis Dawson. Uh, she got a crew together. They trained at night. There were all types of fascinating articles written about her and how it was such a danger to a woman's bodies and <laughs> temperament to be trying to play the national game. <laughs> Hey, this is a TV series. This is a hey, no, podcast. Give me funding, mate. I've got the pitch ready, so I'm just looking for someone to give me some funding to get this going because there's so much. I'm, look, I'm a firm believer in education as a standing point, uh, as a starting point. Sorry, I think that you know people have dumb ideas until they learn different, mm. um, and so I think if you're given well, the full, you know, picture. Then, if they're still making a stupid choice, well, then that's on them and their own prejudice. Amazing, Bailey Mackey, are you listening? Bailey Mackey, <laughs> Pungal Productions. Hey, <laughs> get in touch. This is a series, extraordinary. Um, uh, Julie says, Wallace, my niece plays in the Farrah Palmer Cup. It's a great rugby to watch. My husband and I always enjoy watching the women's game. They're incredibly skilled and always a great spectacle. Shane, more people don't attend. Hey, uh, lovely to have you on the program, Alice. Kia ora, and nice to have you on. Hey, such a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. That is uh, Wellington rugby player, Alice Soper, fantastic player too. Um, gosh, it's a bit of interest uh, in this. Uh, and they say someone says, yeah, the RNZ documentary would be good on this. Uh, there, actually, there is uh, RNZ documentary on the long history of women's rugby in, in New Zealand. Um, but Jenny, someone says, how pathetic. A guy has lost his job for expressing an opinion, albeit a strange one, says Steve. Is that, do you think that's fair? Uh, look, uh, today any company needs their employees to reflect the, the values of their company. But it's just an opinion of his. Yeah, it is an opinion, and and it's it's it just was such an extreme view, and it's like it's his employer's option if he's mis if he's put his employer in disrepute, which essentially he has by these comments, because he's working for a sports network, he's not working, you know somewhere where sport and his job are not related. He is working for a sports network and therefore his opinion on sport will count towards his what, job. What, what happened to the, the, the diversity of opinion, uh, albeit uh, one that we just really hate, Chris? Um, like I said, it all feels a little bit rushed um, uh, about... And, and again, like I'll, I'll repeat what I said before. I'm always about second chances. Hey, if I hadn't been given some second chances, I wouldn't have re- um, you know, ended up being an award-winning broadcaster when I used to sit in this chair 20 years ago. If I hadn't been given second chances, I wouldn't have got to being where I am as being a business owner. So, yeah, I am very much about that. Right. Yeah, I, I think that the, the person who wrote that message might want to go away and read the whole article. It's, just, it's, not a, you know, it's not okay to be referring to women as girls in an article like that in such a you know, dismissive and derogatory way. Mm. Jenny Morton, Chris Wekaira on the panel this afternoon.